up, up and away. Start getting excited. It's time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo here to go as well. And Ira, boy, are we living in some interesting and uncertain times, but Ira on sports rolls on. Well, we want everyone to be safe and healthy um, in their homes, and, and let's talk sports. I mean, I, I just, as I said, we're we're going to have an inspirational speaker, Jimmy Dykes, on, who's who is a ESPN commentator, uh, who's done a thousand basketball games, and, and one of you see him on ESPN every day. But he wrote more of an inspirational book, and we'll talk about the situa- current situation now. And then we have another great author on uh, coming up, Jerome Weitzman, who amazing book about the Philadelphia 76ers and, and it, I cannot wait to get to this interview. Yeah, you've been um, saying this is one of the best books you've read in recent recent memory so this should be a really good interview coming up with Aaron. I'm telling you, if the Sixers if were the Knicks or the Lakers or anything every, the, 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 it, it is totally a soap opera. It is drama, <laughs> everything about it and Yaron captures it perfectly. Great writing style. Just love the book. Uh, couldn't put it down on Saturday. Read it. Just loved it and it's like because you read about things what you heard about the Sixers but when you read it in detail in like a book like that it's like wow like amazing <laughs> and you're probably right if this was the Knicks it'd be a 30 for 30 oh my god I <laughs> think it'll still, it'll still be it could be like an 80 for an 80 or 90 for 90 <laughs> it's just the team is such just so dysfunction and, and everything that went on in terms of the it was the trust the process and the term of that but it's very interesting and it really brings together and, and Yaron is great and, and even his difficulty in writing the book you thought he was trying to get state secrets to nuclear weapons in terms of trying to even interview people <laughs> um you know ira uh, you know thankfully we've got some great interviews but there's not all that much going on but you gotta respect the nfl just a little bit for saying we're keeping up business as usual we don't have to see you in person and of course this is going to affect some free agents like guys like cam newton who you know can't physically um be there to do physicals and stuff like that but the nfl is rocking and rolling and the first big domino i think the one that everyone was waiting to see fall was tom brady and he's going to be coming down to florida well it was when you start. Look, we had Mark Levowitz who wrote the big game on, and he was about, I would say, eight, seven, seven months ago. And this is what he predicted. He said, Brady will play football, but it won't be for the Patriots. Mm-hmm. And when you see their smoke, <laughs> there's a fire. You definitely, there's a lot of smoke that Brady and Belichick were not getting along. They kept issuing statements. We are getting along. We are getting along. Well, clearly they weren't. And it was a situation where, and I think it, it, it came down to, it looks like when Hopkins was traded. Yes. Uh, from the Texans to the Cardinals and for nothing, really. A second round pick. Second, it's a second round pick. And the Patriots did not make that move. Uh, that upset uh, Brady. And when they didn't get Stefan Diggs from Minnesota, who was traded to the Bills, and they could have made that trade, he's like, well, they're not upgrading my team at all. And that's, it was after those two trades went down, then he went to Kraft and said, I'm ready to move on. And clearly, he was like looking for a sign for the Patriots want him. And I think the Patriots tried to, to with Belichick. I mean, they're the Patriots. But it was not a situation where... Like he just didn't want to come back. He wanted to change, and that was it. Was there was not, but those moves, the the Hopkins move and the Diggs move, and if Antonio Brown would have stayed last year, maybe that would have been the difference. If mm-hmm. Antonio Brown would have been on that team all last year, maybe Brady just stays with the Patriots. No, you know I agree with you wholeheartedly, and it was within like twelve hours of the Diggs signing. Tom Brady announces that he's out. It should be interesting. You know, he's not like really an egotistical guy, and Chris Godwin, their superstar wide receiver, wears number twelve. Tom Brady wears number 12. Do you think that there's going to be any kind of, you know, there's always like, you got to buy it from the player. Chris Godwin said he'll give it up. You think we see Brady wearing 12 for a bucket of years or he said he goes, did, going elsewhere? He said 12 wasn't his favorite number. I think he might change. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I say like Kobe's had two, two numbers. Start. Jordan. Seen, so yeah, superstars have gone different numbers. It was interesting. It came down uh, between, I said, of course, I thought the Raiders were going to do uh, the Vegas Raiders, but it came down between San Diego and Tampa and he and they both sort of gave him the same offer and I think he wants to be on the East Coast because his family, part of his family is on the East Coast and it was easier for him to travel and I'm telling you, I really think that uh, Ari, Coach Arians at Tampa was a key factor in why he chose mm-hmm. the Bucks. Um, Arians is probably one of the most well-respected coaches uh, you could imagine, and he's been—he's literally been everywhere. I mean, he played as a quarterback at Virginia Tech in the '70s. He's 67 years old. Went bounced around. To Every college from Virginia Tech to Mississippi State to Alabama. He was the head coach at Temple for six years. Really didn't do well at Temple, but just everyone says, oh, he's great. What a respectful guy there. And then he just bounces around the league as offense coordinators. But he was at, with the Colts in 98-2000. Peyton Manning swore by him. 
thought he was tremendous. Mm-hmm. Then he goes to the Steelers and all Ben, Ben thinks he's the greatest thing in the world. I mean, Ben had, Ben was like a hissy fit after they got rid of Arians because they didn't want him there anymore and they wanted to bring Haley in for like two years afterwards. And I remember going to so many Steeler games and, and Ben and Arians would be talking, scheming, everything together. And after he left, he never was there talking to Tomlin, never talking to Haley. It was just Ben would stand alone. And I think that was, you can see Arians' his reputation of just being this, I'm going to talk to you, I'm great. You see with his crazy hats that he wears, but he's just <laughs> a fun guy and someone who really can talk to people. And then he went to Arizona and he took that team with Carson Palmer and they had unfortunately they got remember those injuries where they had like yeah. all of their quarterbacks got injured I mean they might have gone they were they finished one game away from going to the Super Bowl one year I uh, guess they lost to Carolina and they were the number they were the leading you know number one seed going into another year before they got all their quarterbacks hurt with Carson Palmer so he's proved that he can really work with these players and I mean he did with Jason James Winston in Tampa I mean they you know he led the league in passing with most interceptions but I, the fact is that Everyone loves Arians. Everyone loves how he works with people. And, and I just think that Brady saw that. And I think Brady's talked to the team. And he knows he has the, these, all these weapons. And it was so funny is that they, he didn't make any demands. The comment yeah, was no. is that he made no demands. The only demand he made was, I want the phone number. Because he knows he didn't need to make demands. Yeah. That Ari- Arians, had all, Arians played this perfectly. Because when they asked him even earlier, they go, well, what would you do? What was the one thing you'd want? He goes, I want Tom Brady. But they didn't charge him with tampering or anything. But he always said the most complimentary things. You know, things that, that Belichick never said really about Brady. And those things I think Brady heard and saw. And, and, and from the rest of the league of people talking about Arians, I think that's the key. And I think he really wanted to play with someone. Because he knew that Arians is going to listen. They go, they go, how are you? They ask left foot and Arians go, how are you going to work with Brady? And he goes, he'll do what he wants to do. Like he's going to call the build. We're going to work with him. And he, and I think he knew that that was, that was what's going to happen. So let's talk about, you know, the, the ripple effect of this. And of course, you know, like I said, everyone was waiting to see what happened with Tom Brady. So Tom Brady is signed and all the pieces are beginning to fall into place. And I, I think you're going to end up seeing the Jameis Winston's of the world, Cam Newton's of the world, possibly be backups and there's really just not that many jobs left out there so let's uh let's get into how the quarterback situations are shaping up well the page look at the we'll just go through let's do the afc really fast the patriots now have jared stidham and brian hoyer that's really not going to be their quarterback situation they're going to have to bring somebody in we don't whether it's andy dalton or cam newton or Jameis winston or jacoby Brissett, who i think it's gonna be Brissett. I, I agree and i i that makes so much sense to me that, you know, they traded Brissett away for nothing, really. Philip Dorsett, I think, was the deal. If Belichick likes a guy, he doesn't stop liking them. So uh, it's not going to surprise me at all if he's doing everything he can to get Brissett back in the building. And I think you put Brissett with Hoyer, who worked. That was that was what it was before, was mm-hmm. Hoyer was a backup and, and on that team. So I think that that would be a situation where I think they'd be comfortable and, and Brissett would not come with a huge cap number. And, I mean, I think that's another thing. Belichick did not want, does not want to pay a quarterback $30 million. Thinks that money could be better used in other positions. And so I think he's now getting his wish for that. The Bills have Josh Allen, uh, who is emerging. But now he has Stefan Diggs as a wide receiver. So we're going to see what happens. Jets, Sam Darnold sat in place. And then we come to the Dolphins. And the, when you look at all the moves they're making and everything, it's just looking it seems like, like they want to win games. It seems like they want to win games. They spent $130 million in guaranteed contracts. Um, they're not waiting for Trevor Lawrence next year. I mean, this really looks like they're going after Tua. They're going after a young quarterback and, and, and building a team. I mean, the weird thing about in, in football is that it does take a couple years to get mm-hmm. it. You can't just turn it all around immediately. And I think they want to have a team around a Tua and have work with him and, dra- and make a draft. They have the fifth pick. They might have to move up earlier to get him, but I think that's what they're looking for and have Ryan Fitzpatrick as the quarterback to start. You think we're starting to get to make it or break it with Sam Darnold? Uh, not yet. I don't. I think Darnell and Allen are in that same mix, but I think that they're. I think they're. I think they have at least two more years for them. So let's uh, talk about the AFC North because this one is. Uh, you know, you got the number one overall pick going to this uh, this division. Well, it's Lamar Jackson with the Ravens, of course, for the next. 10, 12 years. How are we talk about Ben with the Steelers, but the Steelers will be looking for a backup in the draft because clearly well, they need something. And then Baker Mayfield with the Browns. But then I got to think Joe Burrow is just going to go to the Bengals. I mean, that, it just, it'd be yeah. shocked they're going to pick anyone else and he'll probably be the quarterback there for 10 years. Uh, we've heard, you were, we're talking earlier about maybe a two, uh, maybe a trade for the Dolphins trying to get Burrow, but I, I just cannot see the Bengals moving off that. You have a, a, you know, a sure thing in Burrow 
Tua has all the injury concerns. Why in the world would they ever make a move like that? You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. On the way, Jimmy Dykes and also Yaron Weitzman. Going to be a great show. Um, AFC South, it seems like really only one team should be kind of super confident with their quarterback in the AFC South. Well, Deshaun Watson, but I don't know if I'm Deshaun Watson, if I'm happy with I'm losing my best yeah. wide receiver in Hopkins and, and all the moves that the Texans are making. I'm a little nervous if I was Deshaun Watson. Will but- Fuller can't play eight games in a year, <laughs> let alone play an entire season. It's They're, they're going to be struggling, but Poor Deshaun Watson. And Ryan Tannehill is back at Tennessee. I mean, Ryan, again, these are one of those things where players move and they go get a right situation, and and it seemed like a perfect fit for him. I mean, sometimes when you choose where you're going to be a backup, he went there, Marcus Mariota was the uh, number one pick in the draft, and he goes there, and and now he's going to sign a big contract and and set in a good place. And then Phillip Rivers for the Colts. Uh, On a one-year deal, a one-year deal that Phillip Rivers goes from San Diego after, I think, what, 15 years at San Diego, and now he's going to be at the Colts. And again, Colts Colts were good. You know, they have a lot of talent. I thought Brissett didn't play well last year. So I, th- I think the Colts can, can definitely do damage this year. And then in Jacksonville, uh, they're going with Gabe, uh, Gabriel Minshew. Gardner Minshew. Gardner Minshew, yeah. Gardner Minshew, sorry. And, uh, uh, and getting trading Nick Foles to the Bears. They just made that move. And so, I mean, I would say that Minshew, uh, with the Jacksonville, though, that this is like a one-year tryout for him. I mean, I oh, don't yeah. think, because I don't think they're sold on him, but I think this is one of those things that, this is where maybe if the Jaguars are so bad, this is where Trevor Lawrence would go next year. Yeah, and that, that could be exactly how this, this plays out. They've traded pretty much everybody away from that team, too. It's going to be tough for poor Gardner Minshew, who I, I do like, but it's just not much around him there. Um, AFC West, you got probably the best quarterback in the league in the reigning Super Bowl champ. Well, Mahomes for the Chiefs forever, of course. And then I think this, we've talked about this before, Drew Locke from Missouri. I mean, Denver loves him. They think, I mean, he's their oh, future. Yeah. They got rid of Flacco. They cut him. And uh, and then Vegas, you have Derek Carr. They, there was a move that maybe Brady would go there. But but Gruden is now going with Carr. And they brought Mar- Marcus Mariota in as a backup. So if Carr completely collapses, then they could potentially bring Mariota in. But Mariota is looking like a, maybe a career backup right now for yeah. a long time. But And then the Chargers... Tyrod Taylor, who is, we saw him with the Bills and bouncing around the league. you got to think there's going to be something different at Chargers. And one of these, we talked about those quarterbacks, the Brissett, the Newtons, the Winstons, the Daltons, the Flaccos, or a rookie is might go to the Chargers because I just can't see them going the whole year with Tyrod Taylor. Let's go to the NFC East. And this is going to be, you know, we'll talk about the draft a little bit more, but you never know what the Redskins are going to do. And although everyone's saying it's Chase Young with the number two overall pick, I'm not going to be shocked if the Redskins grab a quarterback at two. You know, that's the one thing. That's what, if you're the Dolphins and if you see two, you gotta be though, that's the one. Because they're stuck at, remember, the Bengals are at one, the, the Redskins are at two. But but with Wentz with the Eagles for a long time, Prescott with the Cowboys, Daniel Jones at the Giants, Haskins, are they sold on him or not? I mean, Haskins was from Ohio State, but just an up and down year last yeah. year. You got a new, co- new coach in town. New coach and a new, a new people. Well, I just, uh, you're right. I mean, the Redskins are, are, are just the wild card in this mix. They've been a wild card in this league <laughs> for a couple of decades now. Um, what about the NFC North, I? Well, you got the what's in? You have Rodgers at the Packers, Cousins with the Vikings, and, and Stafford with the Lions. Set. And it looks like with the Bears, you're gonna have a battle between Trublitsky and Foles. I mean, yeah. that seems like they're. I mean, when you look at Foles, bizarre and, move. It's it's. I think they're like saying who's gonna win this job, and I think Foles will win. I, I think I, yeah. I think Trublitsky is terrible, and I think Foles, Nick Foles, is gonna be the quarterback for the Chicago Bears. I think it's gonna. I think he fits that, and I think they're gonna like. He's good. I mean, the Bears have a good team with yeah. defense and everything. I think Foles is gonna work it well with them, and I. I think he'll be end up being the quarterback there. And yeah, it wouldn't be the first time that Nick Foles took a team that he didn't need to be the focal point of. Just play defense, give me a couple of playmakers, we can go really and make, far And this. make big plays for the, what he did yes. for the Eagles. And make big plays in big games. He's a big-time quarterback who, who's been able to do that, and, and the Bears are well aware of, of his ability. So I think that uh, I think that Foles will, be, will end up being a quarterback. And Triplitsky, like Mariota, can be one of these other high-priced picks that ends up being just a backup in the league. Seems to happen all too often. Um, NFC South, Ira. The one bizarre thing to me about Brady going to Tampa was that he's probably playing in the best quarterback division in football. It's not going to be easy to get through Matt Ryan and Drew Brees. Well, they'll be exciting. You're going to have Brees, the two guys that have the, all the records that can be playing against each other two times a year in yeah. terms of maybe even three times with Brees and Brady. And then you have Matt Ryan and then Carolina making the move with Teddy Bridgewater. I mean, they're very confident on that. They want that. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how Bridgewater uh, fits in with Carolina in terms of uh, of Ron, uh, you know, in terms of how Matt Rule is, is structuring his offense. And then finally, the NFC West. This one's pretty much set. 
<laughs> you have quarterbacks that, except for, I mean, Russell Wilson, Jimmy G, and Kyler Murray at Arizona, and besides Jared Goff at the Rams, I mean, he's the only one probably on shakier ground. Yeah. But that's what, as we go, we went through those quarterbacks because I really want to do that because you're asking, where are these other guys going to come? Where is Brissett? These are, start, I mean, they we're not just naming quarterbacks. We're talking Jacoby Brissett started uh, how many games in the league? 20 some games in the league. Kim Newton started, was an MVP of the league. Yeah. I mean, they're not 50 years old. Jameis Winston, Kim Newton was number one player taken in the draft. Jameis Winston was number one take, player taken in the draft. Andy Dalton's last, what, seven years been the starting quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals. Joe Flacco's won a Super Bowl and has been a starting quarterback in the league forever. I mean, these are major quarterbacks that don't really have a place yet. So it'll be interesting to see the Chargers maybe somewhere, but it's really, the, it's almost like a game of musical chairs and the music has just stopped. It, it is crazy when you think about it. Even just 10 years ago, you couldn't name most backups. You know, you're just some random guy holding a clipboard. Now, yeah, these former MVPs <laughs> that are still young are, are backups. It's a crazy time in the NFL. Let's talk about some other moves. You got about uh, six or seven minutes left here before we uh, get into our interviews for the evening. But I respect the Dolphins here. I, I think they, they, they got it right with the coach in Brian Flores. Some people thought that they would just fold it up and just, you know, we can keep tanking. Let's, you know, amass some more draft picks. They're not. They went out and they're spending money, Ira. They're spending money, but they're not spending it all in one place. I mean, that I guess the Byron Jones move that from the Cowboys seemed to be it was the second and largest amount of money given out for them. But in terms of the overall scheme of things for the Cowboys, the cornerback, but but bringing in uh, 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 Roberts and Van Noy from the Patriots and Karras, the backup center. I mean, it's like it's like Flores knew who he wanted on the Patriots. He like he understood the team, so yeah. he sort of brought his players there, and that worked out great. But then he got Ogba from the Browns, a defensive end, and then bringing Shaq when we talked about last week about Shaq Lawson and pairing with Christian Wilkins, uh, both guys from Clemson. And then they brought Jordan Howard from the Eagles. So suddenly we're not, we're going to have some sort of running back maybe in Miami after they traded Drake away and whether Jordan Howard can make a difference on this team. But it's, it's like they made a lot of moves and uh, Flores is probably bringing guys that I think fits into his system. You know, it, it's, and they've got three picks in the first round, two in the second. It, you could realistically see a combination of Tua, a left tackle, and they've been rumored DeAndre Swift or a running back like that. If that came together, this team might be able to make the playoffs. I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but if they get that quarterback situation figured out and they hit on a couple of other spots, this team might be one of the better teams in the AFC. Two is the entire wild, wild card. I mean, with all the talent in the world, I mean, he has capability of being Mahomes. So he can be that good, but if he, if he, stays, if he stays healthy, yes. I mean, he's the difference maker on this team. He's the, he, he is everything. And I think that um, people are happy with his recovery, what they've seen about it. Um, it'll be interesting. It'll be, it, I, again, it, it just all comes to his, his ability to stay healthy and how far the Dolphins can go with him. You've got a team in New Orleans who, if you looked up and down that roster, you really think, man, the only glaring thing that this team needs is another wide receiver. They've got arguably the best one in the league, and he had, uh, I think, 120 targets, more than the number two receiver last year. So obviously they're top-heavy. Bringing in Emmanuel Sanders, who absolutely excelled uh, after getting traded to San Francisco for their Super Bowl run, I I think this is a great move. What a, I mean, I saw where people rated that as a bad move, but I, wow. I agree with you. At Denver, he was he was he was a key player. He he really helped San Francisco out tremendously. And in fantasy next year, to have him paired with Thomas to have that other wide receiver. I mean, they were running out Ted Ginn Jr. as their yeah. as their second wide receiver. Just a just a great move, and to give Breeze more weapons. So I think that was yeah, perfect move for them. We saw um, Todd Gurley, the highest paid running back in the league, get released from the Rams, and he found a new home really quick. You know, Gurley's interesting. I mean, when he had a great rookie year, but his second year he didn't play well. He only had 800 yards when the mm-hmm. first year in L.A. And then and then he had those – he had two really f- tremendous years. I mean, I lost – Like fan- MVP caliber. And yeah. I lost fantasy – I lost my fantasy championship <laughs> because the one game he ran for like 5,000 yards yeah. in one game and 10 <laughs> touchdowns. And then at the end of last year he regressed and got hurt. And then last year was just this average year where he rushed for 857 yards and 12 touchdowns and didn't really carry the ball that much. Didn't look like he had explosives. Didn't really complain, but it was like nobody knew what's the matter with him, what's this. So it's like, who do we have? But he's not 35 years old. He's only 25 years old. Yeah. So it would be really interesting to, to see exactly you know how he's going to work with. He goes to Atlanta and how he fits in that in that offense. And, and if Gurley can have one of those super Gurley years, then Atlanta has that dominating running back with the, with the great wide receivers they have in Matt Ryan. I mean, they might 
have one of the best offenses in the league. No, you're absolutely correct on that one. I would be a little concerned. You know, we in the media, we've been speculating for, what, two and a half, three years now about what's wrong with Todd Gurley? Is he still hurt? What, did he fall out of favor? Now it seems like there's reports coming out that he was lazy. And once he got paid, he just wasn't the same guy. So that would bother me. You know, a lack of motivation and a bad knee. We'll see what happens there in Atlanta. Uh, kind of a nice signing for the Bills. They Stephon Diggs wanted out. Minnesota didn't want to deal with it anymore. And he's going to land uh, in upstate New York. Well, it gives Josh Allen. I mean, they had Cole Beasley and John Brown as his wide yeah, receivers. Yeah, it's not the best And player. I think this, look, Josh Allen, again, we're talking about where he is with the Sam Darnell. The same situation is... And I, I, people like it. But, you know, they think he's definitely has this uh, has had all the ability with the arm, and he runs. Yeah, he should have won a playoff game this year. And so I, I like this move, and I think that I think it's going to. I think this this should be finally the Bills have not had a good wide receiver. It seems like a long, long time ever. They drafted <laughs> Sammy Watkins, and even he didn't work out. So um, and it, uh, so this would be this is I think this this is that was a very it was important key signing to give uh, Allen a, a stud wide receiver. I wonder who their best receiver ever is. Peerless Price, maybe. I, I can't even. Think well, of, Andre Reed. Oh, Andre Reed. Okay, but it, what was it thirty years ago? Like right. it's crazy to think about how long it's been since they've had some some decent skill players there. Uh, what other uh, moves you want to touch on here before we get into uh, Jimmy Dykes and also Yaron Weitzman? Um, I think Denver with Melvin Gordon. I I think Melvin Gordon. That was for, a weird falling out too. Well, again, the ch- with the uh, Chargers, he just it just didn't work. He he held out for the contract. They franchised him. He didn't want to go there. All the issues they had with that. Um, but then I think I, I, well, Gordon is another young running back. I mean, you saw how how, how great he was for Wisconsin, and he and just amazing, like one of the top picks in fantasy all the time. And if anybody, if Melvin Gordon's going to be a top five fantasy pick this year, I think, because for Denver and, and, and how they run the ball, uh, I think it'll fit in perfectly there. So I thought that was they needed a, a, a they, they were had a running back by committee. It seemed the yeah. last couple of years that they needed someone like that. I would not be surprised to see Austin Eckler exceed too. If that team had a little more talent and a better offensive line. I love Austin Eckler, so I think that they're they're in decent shape there in, in in LA. I got an amazing staff for you. In 2015, there were 22 running backs drafted. None really? of them, none on the same team. That's Every, incredible because Gordon and Gurley <laughs> were the same draft. None stayed. They were the last two. Not that's 2015, five years ago. Not one running back is on the same team. That's crazy. And, and you know that there's a reason why they just don't. It's just not worth paying these guys anymore because of how fast the carousel goes at the running back position. Right. Uh, what, what else were you, were you uh, taken back by? Um, I think that's. I think you have to look at some of these teams on defense. I think the Eagles picking up Darius Slay from the from the Lions for cheap too. They, they wanted him out. Well, it seemed again like Matt Patricia didn't get along with him, and then he went yeah. out and said, oh, "Patricia's terrible. He's awful." I mean, boy, some of these Belichick disciples, Bill O'Brien, Patricia. There's a lot of these players. Like when you're Belichick, you can have this credibility that oh, you'll fix it. But when you don't have that credibility that Bill O'Brien has, that Belichick has, it's hard when when these players are, are trashing O'Brien and trashing Patricia. That becomes a problem. But but. Boy, the Eagles, I think it'll fit in well well with the Eagles. I mean, it's, it's interesting. The Texans replaced Hopkins with Randall Cobb. Yeah. It was just that, I mean, that was their <laughs> signing. I was like, you're losing the third best wide receiver in the league and replacing with the 100th best wide receiver in the league. <laughs> um, Ira, uh, we, we do have to about wrap this up. Tell us a little bit more about who we've got on the way. Jimmy Dykes and also Yaron Weitzman. Um, yes, Jimmy Dykes is the ESPN college basketball commentator. He also coached for Arkansas for three years for the women's team, but he is one of the top uh, basketball commentator, college basketball commentators. You see him on TV like five days a week. But he has a book that's more of an inspirational book uh, than, but relating to sports. So using sports to, to as a sports as an example of lessons to be learned from sports and what we can do now. And then Jerome Weitzman has a book called Tanking to the Top about the Philadelphia 76ers and the trust of the process. And everyone uses that term. <laughs> but the whole drama that went on with that. And uh, we're going to get to that right now and, on Iron Sports. And but, next week, we're going to have, we have signed up for uh, Wade Phillips is going to be on a uh, former defensive co- co-head coach of the NFL, yeah. defensive coordinator, has a new book out, so he's going to be on the show too. It's going to be, uh, it's an exciting couple of weeks here at Iron Sports. So stick around, it's the True Oldies channel. Okay, this is Iron Sports. We're talking to Yaron Weitzman, who is a Bleacher Report NBA writer. Uh, he just has a book published called Tanking to the Top about the Philadelphia 76ers and the trust the process. So, Yaron, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, so, before we get into the book, where did the term trust the process come? Like, where ha, we hear that term now, everybody uses it not just related to basketball, but everyone's using it. But where did that term trust the process start? 
Um, it actually started. It's funny. Um, it's yeah, Sam Hinkie, right? He never said that. Um, it came from uh, it came from an ESPN magazine story. There was a quote from a veteran on the team named Tony. Ro- excuse me, not a veteran. A backup point guard. There were no veterans on those teams, but a backup point guard named um, Tony Roden. And the ESPN writer said uh, named Pablo Torre. Kind of asked him about like what was going on. It was a story on the process. It wasn't yet known as the process, right? And um, and the writer and Tony Roden said, you know, they just keep telling us, don't worry about the results. I forget exactly what he said, but just trust the process. And uh, people loved it, and it kind of symbolized everything that they were about. And a couple of podcast hosts, local podcast hosts in Philadelphia, who are big Sixers fans, um, sort of took it and ran with it and put it on T-shirts and billboards and whatever, and it became this rallying cry. It's pretty funny. So, I mean, I had Mark Levowitz on the book who wrote the book, The Big Game, and he talked about mm-hmm. how he was getting interviews with Brady and uh, Goodell and how difficult it was. Now, he actually got these interviews, but it was like asking and right. requesting. And I, I, I love in your book, you were like, OK, I'm going to just write about the Phillies 76ers. And you think, well, you'd be able to talk to the general manager and everybody. But it was difficult. Like you, it was almost as like, like you were reporting on nuclear secrets or something to get anybody from the organization and Hinky himself to even talk to you. Yeah, very strange. I don't know how to describe. Again, very strange thing. So I'm, I'm a writer. Like I'm big. I'm not just saying this. Like I'm not somebody who believes that. You know, for the most part, like just because I decide to write a book on you doesn't mean you or a story or anything, right? Doesn't mean you owe it to me to talk, right? Like I'm not somebody like you don't owe me anything. Um, that said, <laughs> there are times when you usually people participate, and you know you get get surprised by the way people act, and like. So again, so we'll say Sam Hinkie, right? Uh, I, I wasn't so surprised. I knew he would say no right away, um, which he did, politely, that we had a nice, polite conversation. He explained why. Um, I have understood because Hinky, I don't necessarily understand everything he's saying. I mean, you do, but like you don't. It's a Silicon Valley talk, right? Like the way they talk. Um, so him, I understood. I kind of thought I would break him eventually, right? That like, usually what happens is they hear, you reached out to their uncle and their neighbor and their cousin and all, you know, and it gets back and it's finally like, okay, fine. Um, him, he never did, fine. The Sixers, on the other hand, I was very surprised because like, it wasn't, they, they do they do interviews with people, right? Hinky doesn't do interviews, so that's fine. The Sixers do, like, you know, Joel Embiid has like, you know, I joke about it because I joke that they give the red carpet to ESPN and no one else. Um, And, like, you know, Joel Embiid on Media Day this year does, like, three one-on-one interviews with ESPN, right? But I won't get one with him for a book. Or the coach, you know, will go on podcast, stuff like that. They just wouldn't do it with me. And they didn't want – they basically, they didn't want this book written. Um, And that's, like, part because of me, part not. Not because of me. You know, this the idea that they have this strange relationship with the process. They're a little embarrassed by it. So I make fun because they're embarrassed by it, but then they trademarked trust the process recently so they can make money off of it. So <laughs> I guess God bless, cap- God bless capitalism, right? Um, but the uh, but no, it's very stressed. Like they would call up former employees and remind them that like the NDAs they signed, you know, <laughs> apply to uh, doing interviews for books. Like one player told me that they team told him no book related interviews, stuff like that. It was really really strange. And I, I to be honest, I don't like. I don't get the PR strategy. I get why you say no at first if you don't want it. Um, but as I explained to them once, you know, a book deal, the way it works is like, you can't squat, you can't, you can't, you know, push it away. Like a book's coming out. It's up to you guys, whether you want to have a say or anything in there or not. Well, the, the thing about the Sixers is that, and you, just spell it out in detail by going back. I mean, you didn't just jump into the hinky years. You actually said, where were the Sixers? And they they were owned by Ed Snyder, who have Comcast. And so they wanted to have contents. And they were in that, quote, stuck in the middle level where they were getting drafting in the 12th, the 12th pick in the draft. Instead of being, you're either going to be at the tippy top like the Warriors or you're going to be horrendous. And you're not being in the middle is the worst spot. And that's where they were. And so they drafted like Thaddeus Young instead of in the same draft that Kevin Durant went. And so you're talking about in those years in terms of how they just played for the middle. But when Josh Harris bought the team who was a private equity guy, equity guy and he brings in other people who are in private equity. The whole mindset of how they viewed this team changed from being just, we're, we're just, we just need to fill the seats. We just need to have an okay team. They, they came in with a whole different mindset. Correct. And it was smart. Like I think, you know, I, you know, you can make fun of ownership, the Sixers ownership and find your faults with them a lot, but that was, um, they were correct about that, right? It's, and it's easy to make fun of the finance guys a lot, especially in how they go about these teams. But some of the things they bring to the world of professional sports are, I think, like make the sport make sports better often, right? Analytical thinking, critical, a different level of critical thinking. And uh, no, they were right, right? The team that plateaued, and they correctly assessed that 
some kind of major change needed to happen for the team to not only win a championship, but also become like a major brand, right? Right. And then, and then just the background, I mean, it seemed like it was 2012. You had the funny story about it. They, they wanted to, they gave one last attempt to make this team get better. They traded for Bynum, Andrew Bynum, if you remember from the Lakers, and he, and he got hurt. He never played because he got hurt bowling. Uh, that difficult. Right. So, but then they, after the year's over, they fire Collins, who said, I hate analytics. And they, they decided to go all in on analytics. So why, why, how did Hinky get the job? Like Sam Hinky was sort of off the radar. I mean, no one was really talking about Sam Hinky like they do now. What made them want to hire Sam? Hinky to give their entire operation to? So he had actually interviewed for the job the year before, him and a couple other more, we'll call them analytically inclined people. Um, and Doug Collins had a major say in the organization, and none of those people wanted to work in an organization where Doug Collins had a major say. Um, I think they basically saw, like, the team, you know, the Bynum trade, like, it all blew up. And I think their kind of, I think ownership kind of discovered, they came in, it's like Doug Collins is sort of this larger than life for this big-time NBA character, and it's easy to be wooed by him, right? It makes sense. Like, he's a famous guy who's going to tell you good basketball stories. Like, that's pretty cool, right, <laughs> if you're not a guy from the NBA. Um, and by a certain point, it's like, okay, let's, let's start doing more of, let's, let's look at this, let's approach this in a way similar to how, how we approach our day jobs. And Sam Hinkie, you know, the language used for a few people, like, you know, he spoke their language, right? So at the end, towards that season, they started, they started rebuilding, or not even rebuilding, they started building up an analytical, an analytic side of the organization, and they realized they wanted a guy who could, like, the thing about Hinky and the teardown, and like, he's called, you know, people, and myself included, refer to him as the architect of the process, but, like, the example, the analogy I, go, I give is, you know, if you hire, like, the way it works is, like, you, you're renovating a house, you hire an architect, the architect is carrying out your vision still, right? Like, it's not like Sam Hinkie came to them with this idea they never heard of. This was kind of all decided together. Well, you mentioned how like private equity, I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm a business background, so I just liked how you talk about it. the private equity guys are like, they take over companies and then they strip everything Correct. down and they, whatever. So it was like, they were just applying private equity principles to the Philadelphia yes. 76ers. Yes. They waited a couple of years, but it's like, okay, let's get to it. This didn't work. You know what I mean? Let's, let's do our, let's do our thing here. This is how we usually are successful. So they bring in, and then Hinky decides to bring in his coach, Brett Brown. And you spent a lot of time talking about Brett Brown and just an interesting character. I mean, he played for Patino at Boston University, and then he goes to Australia and is just like walking around Australia and New Zealand and then somehow got into basketball. It was just, just, a, just a quixotic journey of his career. Yeah, for sure, right? He was somebody, and I think at some point, like, he didn't think he was going to be an NBA head coach. And he was happy about He was happy about it. You know, he didn't think he would be one. And in the end, like, getting the Australian the job as the Australian national team head coach was the major thing for him. Like, that kind of made him realize that he had a shot at, you know, this different sort of career. Yeah, and then, and then so in two, the first year, they were picked to win 17 games. And I remember, now we're, you know, down here with Miami, uh, and, uh, they were, they beat the Heat the first game of the season, the defending champions with LeBron James yes. and Dwayne Wade. And you're like, yes. wait, this team is supposed to be terrible. They're going to only win 17 games and they just beat the defending champions of the Miami Heat who had just beat the Thunder. So, uh, so it goes into that. And then suddenly, then they, then they ended up losing 26 out of 30 at 19 games and, and sort of like everything sort of fell off the rails that year. But they didn't, they weren't, they didn't panic. They actually, we're upset about losing all these games. No, for sure not. Like Hinky, that's like he he thought it was important. He thought it was important to draw to draw a line between him and the coaching staff, right? In terms of in terms of sorry, you got my daughter yelling in the background. I that's okay. That's okay. self quarantine life here, right? <laughs> um, no, in terms of uh, inter- <laughs> no one's going to sleep. No one's going to sleep. Don't worry. Um, sorry. In terms of he drawing a line between him and the organization, him and the coaching staff, in terms of like, and this ended up coming back to bite them a little bit, right? But like, they have different incentives, right? The idea that the coaching staff wants to win every day, we do not. And he thought, and he's probably a little wrong, but he thought because of that, it would be important to almost not hang around the team so frequently because it would just be, you know, if you want different things, he thought it would be unfair if he was around or if he'd be involved like that. He thought it put the coaching staff in an unfair position. So then the 2014 draft, that's who the, the, one of the anchors of the process, per se, is Joel Embiid. And the story about Embiid was tremendous. I mean, you really bring these players out. I mean, stuff that I didn't know from Cameroon. In fact, that he grew up in a privileged, you know, people thought he grew up in, on the, in, the, uh, in the desert or something in Cameroon. Well, he actually was, grew up in a privileged background, didn't start playing basketball until he was like 16, 17 years old. 
but uh, got injured in a in a workout, and so he dropped a third. And yeah. and they knew he was almost not going to play that next year, but they still drafted him anyway. In terms of knowing that no. it's okay that, to sit out a year. No, they knew that him. They had two lottery picks that year, and they both him and this guy Dario Saric, who they knew would be overseas for two years, right? And they didn't take either of them. And they're like, you know, I have so I have an anecdote in there. I think he was an assistant coach who told me the story. Like they were in Brett Brown's office after, and you know. Everyone knew what the deal was, but this made it crystal clear in terms of, like, what's going on, right? Like, Brett Brown turning to the assistant where you just had two lottery picks, both used on guys who won't play this year and maybe even more, and turning to the assistant and being like, so what does this mean for us? Like, half, you know, it's a rhetorical question he knew. So that that draft really symbolized and set up that, oh, this is, this is different than anything we've ever seen. Like, we've seen rebuilds in the past, but to use two lottery picks on guys – who will not be playing that season? Um, yeah, it might literally, literally be unheard of. But then you mentioned how the Sixers. I guess the one thing they did poor, you know, poorly was with Noel, New Orleans Noel, the year before, and with Embiid. Is that they these players? You have these superstar players that aren't going to play the whole year, but then they got disillusioned. They got heavy. They're not working out. They're causing problems. And it's Brett Brown doesn't want to to reprimand them, and Hickey didn't want to reprimand them. So it just became a continuing problem. We have all these superstars, young players that are just causing problems on the team. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, I kind of call it the original sin for them a little bit. It's and like I feel, I don't know what the answer is right because like I'm I'm not somebody who is pro a Bobby Knight style head coach, right? Where like discipline, like that kind of thing, where you should be yelling and screaming and throwing chairs at people to discipline players or stuff like that. Um, but on the other hand, like there's some kind of it factor that's supposed to there's some kind of it factor that's supposed to help that's supposed to help in terms of in, this. And so it's supposed to help in terms of, I'm sorry, it's supposed to help in terms of um, how you get players to buy in, right? How you get players to realize what you're doing. And it's just Brett Brown always missed out on that one, right? So Noel part missing, like, he would say, we find him hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And then nothing happened. And yet, for some reason, there was always this issue that these guys just, I don't know, it's, I, don't, I don't know what it is. Again, like, Greg Popovich would say that Tim Duncan lets him, like, let him coach him. And just, that was the difference. But on the other hand, it's just, I don't know, it never, I don't know, it never happened. So we're talking to your, your own Whitesman from Tanking to the Top. This is Iron Sports on 95.9, Um So the second year, they go 18 and 64, uh, another terrible year. But the point is that at that time now, people are starting to not like Sam Hinkie, being that the agents, you talked about how agents couldn't stand him. The general, other general managers were furious at him. And the team ownerships were mad because they were putting in this horrendous product on the, on the court. Nobody's going to their games. And suddenly now this blowback, it's not just, okay, one year we're going to have a rebuild. Like this is actually a problem that people didn't start. And Hinkie didn't, you mentioned in the book that he didn't care that everybody hated him. It didn't really bother him. But no, he knew it would happen, right? He knew, like, I have an anecdote where he's told, he's asking for a restaurant recommendation and says, uh, I need a place where I can sneak out the back door because everyone in the city is going to hate me. You know, and he knew that would happen. Um, but just, yeah, it just, it's, it's like he kind of felt like he was saving fans from themselves, right? He felt like he knew, you know, they don't know how to, they, we all want the same thing. They don't know how to best do it. Um, this, this is like, they're going to hate me for a couple of years, but he believes in the work, right? He believes in the end, the work would pay off. And in the end, agents would see, you know, the players would want to come and everything would pay off. And I think, I think he definitely did. He underestimated the political aspect of it, right? How much that matters and how much keeping your job and keeping yourself employed matters. <laughs> yes. And then you, and then what happened in 2015 is that you said, like, there was optimism. Like, Embiid was going to be back that next year. Sark was maybe one year later that they might have everybody coming back. They had this, the third pick in the draft. Like, everything looked good. But then Embiid hurts his foot in a, he was dominating in a pr- scrimmage one time, then hurts his foot. Then he's going to be out another year. And then they draft, I loved how you, they were, you showed how they were trying to draft Persingas, but Persingas' agent didn't want Persingas to ever play for the Sixers. So he was totally avoiding every meeting. It's like, it was funny. In that in that book about that, and they drafted Okafor from Duke instead. No, and that, I mean that story is kind of emblematic, right? Like, you know, if they had, but it shows the gray area because there's the other side. That part of the reason Porzingis didn't want to work out there that he wouldn't is because he shared an agent with Nerlens Noel. Um, and like, if you're an agent, you have two top five um, centers on the same. You don't want them on the same team, right? That creates all sorts of issues, right? The other part, though, is that, no, Hinky did not have a good relationship with the agent, and because he doesn't have a good relationship, that's not an honest back and forth, and he misses the workout, and maybe, you know, a lot of teams wouldn't have drafted him, but maybe if he works Porzingis out, you know, and I have a story where, like, they're watching 
some staffers come down and see Porzingis in a uh, they try to bring Porzingis down to Philly and they hear him in a bathroom basically pretending to throw up, right? He's <laughs> right. Pretending he has people. I mean, I guess I can't say pretending, but you know, they hear vomiting noises coming from the bathroom. How about that? Um, but uh, you know, but maybe if he does get in the workout, maybe he sees something. Like Hinky was big on everything's a data point. So maybe he sees some data point there that shows, oh, this is actually the guy. Like this guy is different. So, I mean, so he's still getting these draft picks, but then the Okafor draft pick, I mean, again, drafting three people in the same positions, but then you have another problem that, I mean, I guess Okafor, you're sort of point to as the downfall of Inky because Okafor was getting into fights and was just becoming a big problem, even though he wasn't hurt, he was just causing problems. And then suddenly now Harris and the ownership group of the Sixers are sort of like, we've given you two years, you're in the third year, there's no improvement. And they brought in a CEO, It just seemed like that was the year that, I mean, of course it was, but it, but it was, that's when it started just to slip away from Hinky and running the team. Yeah, it's kind of, I describe it like he was sort of the man, like there's like, I hate the cliche, but like the straw that broke the camel's back type thing, right? Like he's in the middle of 40 different storms, you know, going on. And the Okafor saga is kind of the one that breaks it, right? Like whether it's opposed, the owners aren't happy, his owners realizing that, oh, we actually don't, it's not fun owning an NBA team that everyone hates, right? It's kind of the whole point of owning an NBA team is supposed to be fun. And, you know, your buddies like you and, like, when your billionaire buddies who own other teams are complaining and, like, the league's not happy and Sixers' business side of things aren't happy and agents aren't happy and all this stuff going on and just the noise can become too great. So they decide to make the move and they, they well, they bring Jerry Colangelo in and then it's sort of like you're writing on the tail to get rid of him. And then I thought the book was going to end there, but I loved how the fact that you continued, the fact that Hinky wrote that resignation letter, I think, what, a 20-page resignation letter to, to, the, to the owners of yeah, why. And uh, and then so Brian Coangelo, but I mean he's almost as entertaining as Hinky was in terms of I mean he drafted uh, Simmons uh, Ben Simmons with the number one pick, but then another I mean they are just the experts at drafting players that are the number one pick and then get hurt. It's just crazy. And then so he's hurt the rest of the year. Uh, but that was just like and that was just a mess in terms of Colangelo running that team that year. Yeah, they picked. Um yeah, I, going back to my research and like, I found these, these, I'll say great, that's the wrong word, maybe illuminating quotes on uh, Brian Colangelo, like, you know, that back when his father hired him in the early 90s, I guess it was, in Phoenix, and he's talking about how, like, he's aware of the charge of nepotism and it bothers him. And, like, you take that guy, and back then, like, the guy's been trying to fight against that his entire life, and you drop him into a situation where, one, once again, it's his father's team, right? So that's there, and he's following in this guy's footsteps where he's like a cult following, and his footprints are all over the team, and the shadow's looming over it. It's just it's not a good mix. Looking back, it, you know, it's easy to say that, but I, I'm surprised. I don't know. It feels like something we could have all been aware of. It should have been more obvious probably, right, and everyone makes sense that how combustible the situation was with him taking over, with that guy taking over. And then you get back into another draft with the 17 where they have the, they have the number three pick, but they go and they, they draft up the trade to get Markel Fultz. So they give up all, another number one pick just to move up two spots. Whereas the Celtics wanted Jason Tatum and were happy to drop down to three. Like they were, they were ecstatic. That's who the player they were going to draft. So they picked up, they got the player they wanted to move down. And then the whole Fultz thing. I mean, you really went into detail what happened with that. I mean, that, it was just amazing that a guy could be picked number one in the NBA draft and can't shoot the basketball. Just crazy story. No, it's one of the weirdest stories we've seen, right, in sports. Like we've seen it in baseball, but not in basketball. Um, and like I think, yeah, the folks think there's a bunch of things. Like one, and I, you know, we know this, but we forget. Like most number one picks are kind of groomed for that. He folks was playing JV basketball still as a 15 year old. Like he went from that within two and a half years to becoming a number one pick. That's a lot for him and a family and a circle to take. Um, to encounter and it's just I think it led to a lot of different stresses and with him with his family like I have stories in there about his mom his best friend his manager kind of getting in fights um, arguments and you kind of again you don't know that A leads to B but it does lend some context into okay maybe this shows some insight into what exactly happened here we're talking to Yaron Weitzman tanking to the top just a few more minutes. Um, and then the one story that's probably of all this, I mean, every story is crazy in the book. This whole team is a mess. Yeah. And then to top it off, you have Brian Crangelo getting his yeah. downfall yeah. because he had five fake Twitter accounts and he was using them to undermine people who were criticizing him. I mean, it's just, just an amazing story to give a sort of description about your research. I mean, I heard about this, but you really spelled it out exactly why a GM of a basketball team was using fake Twitter accounts. 
It's, it's the weirdest thing. Forget that. Try explaining to a fact checker and a copy editor. Like, this compiling that whole that whole chapter is one of the weirdest things I've ever done. Having to synthesize like all those tweets and everything into like coherent paragraphs and just like explain it and just like explain what was going on um, and try to synthesize all that and explain to people how like no uncone like you know one of the Twitter handles was unknown sources except it was mistyped so it was spelled as uncone and having to explain to my to my copy editors like no leave the typo uncone is correct it was just the strangest thing and again it goes back to what i was saying in hindsight it makes sense i guess but like you know it's the guy clearly cares so much about what people think and it's you know and again it was just such a combustible situation wow so I mean, and then we're stuck with this current day Sixers. I mean, we're lucky we're down here in Miami and you've, you've detailed how Jimmy Butler has bounced around and didn't find, you know, he was miserable in Chicago, miserable in Minnesota, miserable in Philadelphia. And it seems like he's found a home here in, in Miami. Finally, I mean, he's now on his fourth team and it's like this was hopefully this lasts long, but it, he fits out well. So, but I guess the big question is for someone who studied this team is will Simmons and Embiid, will this ever work? I mean, they had a chance. They've, they've only won in all their time two playoff series that's it i mean last year they lost to toronto in that great game seven tremendous ending but they but really what is the future with the sixers with simmons Embiid, and brett brown yeah i think brett brown's in trouble i think it's fair to say that um with simmons and Embiid, it's the roster construction around them this year was uh like i think the al horford deal would be the example right like they made some mistakes um they're not bad. Like, you know, everyone wants to know about their relationship. Uh, they're not best friends. The example I give, though, is I think it's kind of like the college roommate who, you know, you go to appreciate or at least have some sort of respect for after all those years, even though they might get on your nerves sometimes, right? Um, the on-court fit is the problem, is the question. But, like, it's a fascinating question because the fit is not great, but sometimes talent wins, and I just I, – this is not a cop meant to be a cop bad. I just really wanted to see what those two would look like with, like, shooters around them and guys who could handle the ball and, like, a modern roster – around them and they have not done that and that might be i'm not gonna say a downfall i'm i'm curious to see if when if the nba ever returns um like what the what the way out of this would be wow and, and since you since your book that the tanking to the top i mean we've had a lot of authors on our show in this time this is a great book to read uh, you can order on amazon uh, either the pdf copy or the hard copy what has been the response? I mean, the book's been out for a few weeks. Have you got any response from Sixers, from Hinky's friends? Uh, any response from people in terms of... Uh, of, uh, of- <laughs> no, okay, sorry. It's funny you say that. I think the Sixers are still going to pretend it doesn't exist. I don't know. Now, again, this all came out because my luck, right? And, you know, obviously, Wharton has a million more things. It came out at a time when everyone has other things on their minds, right? So, like, it's not like I'm going to a Sixers game right now. You know, it's not VA. Um so I'm not running into, you know, for example, Brett Brown, right? Um, people around the NBA have seen, have, uh, no, people around the NBA enjoy it. I think they enjoy, I think there's some shot in Freud in there, right? I, I guess I, uh, I'm not going to say I take some shots, but there's some, you know, I, I laid out some things on the Sixers. I think that's fair to say, right? And I think all journalistically fair and all that, but, um, you know, some things you don't want to say, see or read about NBA teams a lot. Um, no, I'm still waiting. I, I'm curious. So I'm curious. I'm, that's a long-winded answer. I'm very curious to see, like, what happens the next time I go to a Sixers game, whenever that will be, right? I'm very uh, – well, next time I see Brett Brown or this team CEO, Scott O'Neill, who I'm, you know, out there a little bit in the book. Um, as for Hinky, I have not heard anything, and to be honest, I do not expect to. So. Do you think do you think anyone will ever give Hinky another job, or is he done? I mean, it's amazing. He goes to MIT Sloan Analytics Conference, and he's like a rock star, and everybody knows about yeah. him. But it's like he'll never he'll never get another job in the NBA again, even though he's viewed as this genius. Well, it's not. I think that it's it, it, the it's both right. The teams he'd be willing to work for. It's the teams who'd be willing to hire him and take a shot. There's also the teams he'd be willing to work for and the ownership groups he'd be willing to work for. And if you like combine those lists, if you like have a Venn diagram, the middle circle, the list in the middle circle is really, really short, right? If anything, and he, he felt betrayed by ownership in this one. He felt they were all on the same page. They thought, they thought alike, you know, they looked at things similarly. And when they kind of pulled the rug out on, pulled the rug out under him, I think that, um, I don't know if he's willing to deal with that again. 
Well, thanks a lot, Yaron. I really appreciate it. I know this is a, a difficult time, and, it, and it's a book. If you guys, you know, everyone, we talk sports on our show because, I, I again, we just cannot watch the news every single moment of the day. And, <laughs> and, you can, and, and just escape yourself in a book, and, and it's, it's, it's phenomenal, and, and just and read the book. And it's, it's like one of those books. I mean, I, I have a friend. I got a friend of mine from Philly who has a high school kid, and they're reading the book together. And it's great because they're talking oh, about it. Great. They're reading it, and they're, they're reading like, you know, I said they're reading 50 pages a day, and then they talk about it at dinner so it gives them something to talk about so i think it's great i'm glad this book came out uh thank you for writing it and, and i appreciate you coming on i run sports no i'm gonna add that to my uh, tagline i'm bringing families together now, thank you for having me and i apologize to you and uh listeners for the uh Kids in the background. No, the, uh, no, that's phenomenal. That's, that's a difficult one. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. You saw it in the book how you got Hinky an interview. He wouldn't walk away and you started talking about his kids and then that sort of got you another, 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 five, <laughs> another five more minutes with him. But thanks a lot, Yaron, for coming on. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. We're talking to Jimmy Dykes. He's the uh, ESPN college basketball analyst. I think you've... you've uh, commented on over a thousand college basketball games for ESPN, but his new book is called The Film Doesn't Lie. It's in bookstores. If you can't get a bookstores, it's on Amazon. You can go get the PDF version online. It's a tremendous book. I read it this weekend. Just a very inspirational book. J- Jimmy, thanks for coming on Iron Sports. Ira, man, thanks for having me. It's uh, kind of a odd, different, new time in our country right now, and I appreciate your time today with me. Well, I mean, your book is a very inspirational type of book. And it's uh, and you're using your the, you're using lessons from sports into people's everyday life. And I guess I would you know in terms of talking about the present situation, I mean sports. We're not watching like the person who's trying to find the cure for coronavirus. We're not actually have a camera watching them do that, even though it's the most important thing you could imagine. We don't see the doctors working. We don't see um, even artists like a Shakespeare writing a novel. But sports is unique because we actually are watching these athletes perform on a day. You know, everybody on TV and everything. So as much as when Charles Barkley goes, we don't want to be a role model. These people, it's something that's related to. We can relate to sports because we watch it every day. So I guess in, in this, these times, what's, what connections do you, what lessons do you have from sports that could help people that are suffering now, that are nervous, that are anxious? What can we apply from we see in sports to everybody's daily life? Well, I think that's a great question. You know, there's so many life lessons that come out of sports you talk about handling adversity and having determination and, and persistence in your life as an athlete. I think all those lessons cross over to real life, and certainly for all of us where we are right now. And you know, that's, that's the heart of my book. It's a, it's a sports book, and I give a lot of different stories and, and lessons I've learned through my time with ESPN and coaching all across the country, but it goes – much, much deeper than that. You've read the book yourself, so you understand it. But it's, I think it's so important uh, as an athlete uh, or as a person to take time, like honest time to evaluate where you are as a player, where you are as a person. And that's the heart of my book, to take the readers into that inside world of what that evaluation process looks like from a coaching and a player standpoint and that's where that term, the film doesn't lie, comes from because it doesn't. And if a reader, you know, goes through the book and takes it to heart and creates intentional time and space in their heart to look at their life, like a coach looks at the game film, I think tremendous growth and tremendous change can, can, can come into somebody's heart and somebody's life from it. So uh, that's, that's kind of the crossover between sports and real life. Well, a lot of people don't realize how much time coaches and I, all my, I have a lot of friends in the coaching community. And I mean, I think they must spend 10 hours a day. It seems like watching film and it's not just watching the game. It's watching every little aspect. And one little thing I, I gave an example last week's show, my friend Mike Zalino coached Robert Morris and he noticed that one of their guards, uh, when they set a pick would like to always get a little bit of space, which gave you time to come in and then push the guy back farther on a three, which is a small little, like a two inch difference. And right before during a walkthrough he he kept hammering at home to his team and they utilized that in the game and the point is is that the coaches use these tapes to help them get ready for these games to deliver life and look back at also not for, forward what games are playing but also games they've done with what they can improve on 
And I guess you're trying to get people to look back, not with that critical eye on what they've done in their lives and, and, and make improvements and look at the tape because it doesn't lie. It's what you have done and how to not make those same mistakes and how to uh, improve in the future. No, that's exactly right. And that's, man, that's, it can be hard sometimes to watch a film and see, you know, the areas that we're doing good, but also to see those areas that we're not doing so good. And this, this book will take the reader through that same process. And, but that's really the only way I, I think that real lasting change and a more authentic walk with God can ever come about in our life is when we just get very quiet uh, before, the, before, before God and very transparent with our heart with Him about how we are and who we are in different areas of our life. And then let the power of His Holy Spirit and His written word change us. And that book will take all of us right to those spots. And that's, you know, that's the beauty of, like I said earlier, creating time and space in our life to go through that process. And, and uh, I, I, I know the book will speak to the reader in different areas. I've heard from readers all across the country. It's much more than a sports book. You don't even have to like sports, I think, to, to get good growth and, and uh, good change in your life from it. But certainly if you like sports, the two are going to cross over really well. Uh, and there's, it was, a, it was a challenging thing for me to write, to be honest with you, because it challenged my own heart to look at my own, my own path and trajectory and where I'm going in different areas in terms of the words that I use, the word choices that I use, the, how much unforgiveness I found in my heart that I had towards a situation or others from my past that I needed to get right. There's a lot of different things that I talk about. It challenged me as I wrote it, and I know it will challenge readers as they read it. And you talk about, I mean, one of the coaches, I mean, you're sitting there, you know, I said you covered over a thousand college basketball games when you meet with these coaches. And one of the coaches you've met many times and worked, you know, her games is Coach K. You talked about a game last year against Louisville when they were down 23 points with a few minutes to go in the game. And, and you asked Coach K actually before the game and after the game, and he goes, and he said, you have to have a strong face even when you don't feel strong. And I think that's for today's world. I mean, when you come and you're, you're looking at your family and you're nervous because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what everything, but your children are looking up for you. Your children are looking for the parents to sort of set the tone. And so you also have to have that strong face, even, even when there isn't, you know, when, when you don't feel strong yourself. Yeah, that was a, that was just a great, uh, just a great moment, a great day with coach K just the comeback they had against a really good Louisville last year. And, to watch Coach K work during that game and talk about what he talked about within the game. And, this, the, the, and then the power of our words is so important, not only in terms of how we talk about other people, but what we say about ourselves and our circumstances and our situation. And that's very important right now with what our country's going through, just our, our mental approach to it, our spiritual approach to it, and how intentional we are about our thoughts our words and, and how we're all trying to get through this time in our country. So I, I, if nothing else, I know that one chapter, the power of our spoken words is very timely and, and can be very useful to people right now. And you mentioned about not just, I mean, we don't, all have the luxury to have a Coach K in our lives to to, to motivate us. And, and you mentioned like a Justin Rose, who was a, one of the top golfers in the world, and how uh, when he plays golf, and you meant, when you were following him, how he motivated himself in terms of even when he's making him a shot, what he would just talk to himself and get himself motivated. And, and, and you notice that a lot of the others, these star athletes, that's what they do. It's not this cocky overconfidence, just that even when I hit a bad shot, I've got to just keep motiv- being your own coach. Coach and motivating yourself to keep performing well. Yes, I mean we, we listen to our own voice as individuals more than any other voice in the world in a twenty-four hour period. So I think it's so important to, to pause and reflect on how that voice, talking about our own, how it aligns with what God says about us, our own written words and the, the words that we use, and how does that align with what He says who we are and how we are to be. So. Uh, it was, you know, it's it's an easy read. This this book, the film doesn't lie, is an easy read. Uh, I wrote it. I don't use big words when I talk. I didn't <laughs> use big words when I when I wrote it. But it's also a very hard, challenging read for people that want to change in their life, want self improvement, want a more authentic, closer walk with God, and just a, a, a more life changing 
I guess, relationship with Jesus in their heart. I know this book will point readers in that direction. Yeah, I mean, one of the thing, what aspects in the book is if a chapter, uh, this, we're talking to Jimmy Dykes, the author of the film Doesn't Lie, is, um, we have, is the idea of surviving the, surviving the drought. And you talked about Austin Hatch who, and, and everything he was through, and you can you know, describe a little about him. But in terms of when, and you and you you put it back to sports analogies in terms of when the, it's getting the tough, when the game is the most difficult, is how these pl- teams and and players are able to just still survive even when it's just a total disaster around them. Yeah, Austin Hatch has an incredible story. I mean, he survived two plane crashes that you're just not supposed to be able to survive, and. You know, he has a great, a great message in his story about resiliency and doing the right things when things don't go your way. And, and I expand on that quite a bit in that chapter on the drought. But, man, we all, we're all going to go through hard times. We're all going through one right now. Uh, but there's more to come down the road, and we've all been in them, been out of them. And I think it's so important to be intentional when you're in a difficult spot, a hard time in life. I think it has to be great intentionality about how you're going about it and the lessons that I've learned uh, through God's written word and the the lessons that I've learned from watching others go through tough times in sports. You know, I think I, I, I laid it out there pretty well for the readers to digest and, and take, take to heart and, and keep that with them throughout their life. When they hit a rough patch, they hit a bump in the road. I think we're called to handle those times in a certain way. And if we do, man, the growth that can come from that is tremendous, much greater growth than if we don't handle adversity the right way. Yes. I mean, you, and you talk about in your book about like, uh, the noise, you know, eliminate the noise. I mean, you hear coaches say that all the time. We just got to eliminate the noise and, and you're in those environments. You're in those at Vanderbilt university when there's 10,000 fans going crazy at Cameron indoor stadium and the ability to, when there's, when, you know, when the news is coming on and there's this and you're getting a thousand texts about how bad, but just sort of eliminating the noise from everyone around you and how the, the great players and the great teams again are able to eliminate those, those noise, the, the noise and excel. Well, I think that's a discipline that has to come with, you know, being very intentional about what you allow into your ears, what you allow into your mind, what you allow eventually into your heart. And if you don't have a plan for that and you're not intentional about it and you don't have barriers and boundaries around you, man, a lot of bad stuff can, can seep into you. And that's not what you want to be in life. At least that's not what I want to be. And, and I think that, more the, the 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 best leaders, the best coaches, the best players I've ever been around. That's I think they are tremendous at that at that one thing, and that's eliminating unnecessary, untrue noise in their life. And uh, there's great benefit in doing that for all of us if we can uh, understand the discipline and how that works. I mean, Jimmy, your book is just so inspirational. I mean, I, again, it's just you wrote it before we went through this. Uh, this tough time that we're dealing with now, but it applies then and it'll apply in the future and applies right now. Um, and one of the aspects you said was about control, what you can control and, and how you said that you hear coaches say that all the time. Don't do too much on the court. Don't try to play five positions. Just do your job, do what you can do and worry about what you can do. And that's like, you know, people out here, we can't solve the, 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 the court. We can't find a court. We can't, you know, treat people that are sick. Most people can. I mean, the people that are doing it are tremendous, but you can control, you know, how you talk to your kids, your wife and your husband and how you talk to your parents and, you know, control what you can control. And I thought that's a really great lesson in today's time. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, you know, there's, there's tremendous accuracy and truth in that statement as well. And, but we're all, we are all individually responsible for that. You know, I, I, I can't control what, what only Ira can control and vice versa. Like there are some things in life that's on me and it's on you and it's on anyone that you're, you're in charge of some things in your life and no one can do those things for you. So that takes some maturity. That takes some strength. It takes some inner guidance. It takes help from the Holy Spirit and, and God's, you know, day-to-day help and strength in our life for those things to come to fruition. But there's, again, that's when great, I think, prosperity and change occurs in a person's life when they 
have that plan. They wake up and they execute that plan. They're intentional about it day after day after day after day after day. They just stick with it. And uh, that's, that's, again, just one of the many things I talked about in that book. And I'm not an expert on any of that stuff I talked about. I just know the things that I've been through, I've seen others go through, that I've learned from, that I, that I try to share and be very transparent with with the readers in the, in the in that book, The Film Doesn't Lie. And you had a great analogy in your book, and I, not an analogy, but actually a, because it's an observation, because you go to all these sporting events and you're doing college football and college basketball and college baseball, and Vanderbilt had just won the national championship uh, in baseball. And one of their star players you saw after the end of the game, isn't celebrating, isn't champagne or whatever they want to do. He's picking up the trash in the dugout because that's what he does all the time. And I think the point is that you just got to stay true to yourself. In the good times and the bad times, you just do the do what you do. Do the right thing all the time. And that's what, that's what he did all, all year. When they won and when they lost, he always made sure that the dugout was left clean. And no matter if he had scored, had four home runs in a game. And I just liked how your observation of that was, it was just very interesting. Yeah, that that story really I mean, it resonated with me because man, it's so easy when things are really going your way. They had just won the national championship to get away from being grounded in who you are as a person and what you stand for as a team or as an individual. And for that uh, Vanderbilt team to you know can, to, com- to complete their season like they did as national champions, but then also make sure all the trash was picked up out of their dugout immediately after following that game. And that that's really cool stuff. And that's man, there's great lessons in there for all of us that the importance of being consistent in your life when things are rolling your way and when they're not. And that that story was one of my favorite ones uh in that book. Yeah, I mean I hope I mean as I said, I go to a lot of youth sports, and so do you, and I get depressed when I'm looking at the parents yelling at the officials, yelling at other players on teams, and, and, and we get back to that when you talk about spoken word. I mean, that's one of the depressing things, I think, about going to high school basketball is the screaming and yelling at the officials who are you know, hardly making any money at all just doing these games and then yelling at, actually at other players and players on their own team. And I just hope that when this virus is over, people would get this back to a sort of an appreciation for sports and appreciation for other people and, and, and just the love of what it is. And I mean, that's what you sort of you express that more of a, a thankfulness and appreciation for what we what we what we have. And I think people for so long maybe took sports and the ability to play sports for granted. I mean, the fact that they have two arms and two legs or, you know, people that are disadvantaged are still playing sports uh, with one arm and one leg. But the ability to go out there and, and to do something and to, to compete, um, we we sometimes we we I think everybody has taken, uh, you know, taken advantage, you know, for, for granted the fact that they have these great gifts. Yeah, and I think that's one of the hopefully the positives that come out of our challenge right now as a country that we reevaluate individually and collectively in terms of what's really important and maybe what's not so important, and we can easily get that out of balance if we're not careful and intentional and. You know, I think there will be a lot of good come out of this time in our country right now. It's not going to all be good, but I think there's a great opportunity for a lot of growth for people and for companies and families and, and husbands and wives and dads to, to kind of step back and, and maybe just reset, you know, push the reset button in their life in terms of things that they want to have important from this day forward going on and make an honest evaluation, honest change in that area, because that's taking things for granted, man. We all, we all, that's, that's, that's an easy one for us all to fall into that trap. And again, but again, I think it's, it's something that if you're not just directly intentional about your thinking on it, uh, then it, that can happen. So that's, you know, I just, I'm looking for good times uh, and positive change in, in the lives of people that pick up this book and read it. Uh, and I, I just well thank you again for having me on. I know the book has already resonated with, with people from all walks of life, from college coaches I've heard from to grandmothers in California to a teenager in Florida. So uh, I, I, I think it's a, a great opportunity for self-investment is probably the best way for me to finish up our conversation about that book. The book is The Film Doesn't Lie. It's from Jimmy Dykes, ESPN 
uh, analysts, college basketball, college football, college baseball. Everybody has plenty of time. They're at their home. You know, turn off the TV uh, and just sit down, buy this book, and, and read it. And, and, and I liked how you said, you know, you actually in part of the book said, stop, stop reading. Think about what, I, what you've just read. <laughs> Take time. Don't rush through the book. Enjoy it and savor it. Um, and I really appreciate you, Jimmy, for coming on Iron Sports. Um, it's, the book is The Film Doesn't Lie. It's available online. You can download a PDF. Or you can order it through Amazon. Uh, but I suggest getting the book. It's a phenomenal book. Ira, thank you very much.